You're listening to the Podcast Detroit Network. Visit www.podcastdetroit.com for more information. Hi, and welcome back to another episode of Unsung Heroes, Stories to Inspire, here on Podcast Detroit. I am your host, Dr. Saba Maruf, and my purpose is to share stories of um, ordinary people who have been sparked by their passion to become movers, shakers, and change makers in our communities. We hope that by sharing diverse and unique voices of positivity and impact, we will inspire you to live a life of purpose and action. And I'm super excited today. Um, we have an amazing guest. Um, but first, I want to introduce my co-host, Calvin Moore. Hey! Hey, Calvin. I'm here. And you're the sound engineer today, I'm, too. I'm Jess, Jess today. Yeah. I am Calvin and Jess. I don't know what to do <laughs> with my hands. <laughs> okay. <laughs> no? Put them down, Ricky Bobby? No? You're pressing record, right? I, it's, go- it's on. Okay. okay. It's, the reason she's doing this is because I did my own show last week. And it was a two-hour conversation about gentrification, and it was fantastic. Oh, man, I had a panel discussion, too. and I didn't click record. Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> it was pretty bad. But we are going. Everything's jumping, jumping. Okay, We're good. 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 So. Okay, good. How are you doing? I'm good. I'm okay. And your show's recording, so okay, that's, that that's makes me feel even better. Okay, awesome. But I have to go to court later today, so oh. I'm not super excited about that. I have to go home and cook. We're actually having our neighbors over. I would take that over... <laughs> I'm excited. I never have a day where I can just, all I have to do today is cook. I never do that anymore. Okay. And well, I find it relaxing. I mean, so I'm a little hurt that I wasn't upset <laughs> and that I wasn't included <laughs> as a friend there. That's <laughs> well, we'll do another one. That's tough. Worry. Okay. All right. But, my, my wife and I like to eat. We do this. Okay. We're kind of foodies. We're, we're, no, I'm definitely going to have you over okay. sometime. All right. Cool. But I'm super excited. Um, Sultan Sharif is my guest today. Um, and before my intro, Sultan, I just want to say Ramadan Mubarak. Oh, Ramadan Kareem. <laughs> Tomorrow uh, is the first day of Ramadan. Okay. It starts tonight. I know. All right. So I'm all like, happy Ramadan. Mean? And you guys are like, blah, 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 blah. Like, oh, wow. Okay. They're like super, super <laughs> going on. And that's really cool. So wait, I mean, teaching moment for, yeah. for me, because I was raised Christian, right? Uh, so you said uh, Ramadan Mubarak, mm-hmm. which is the name of a guy, if I'm not mistaken. Like, there was, isn't there someone, a President Mubarak? Yeah. yeah. Okay. okay yeah. All right. Oh. All right. Or so, Mubarak Obama? <laughs> oh, that's not really that's no it's, okay i was gonna say what <laughs> did they shorten it it's not just barack um okay so mubarak what does it mean um it means like um we just out here like, saying stuff you don't even know what it means <laughs> no it just means like um hmm, like be bl- like blessed it comes from the root word bar- barak which okay. means blessed so have a blessed ramadan okay and then your right. your response was <laughs> ramadan kareem okay as in Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. Abdul-Jabbar. Yeah. <laughs> I, I'm trying to like find pop culture references for myself yeah, to remember this. Yeah, that's, that's true. Yeah, and uh, and it, it's funny because any African American or most African American Muslims, we always say Ramadan Kareem in response to Ramadan Mubarak, but uh-huh. some people just say Ramadan Mubarak back. Okay, but we grew up learning that Ramadan Mubarak is like the sending greeting, and Ramadan oh, Kareem is the response greeting. Oh, okay, so sometimes it'll throw throw you off as a Black Muslim when you say Ramadan Mubarak, and someone's like Ramadan Mubarak, and then you're like, you're supposed to. Korean. Really? <laughs> oh, so it's, it's okay, like Asalamu alaikum, Salaam, Salaam. Yeah, yeah. Okay, well, okay. well, we treat it that way, but I guess it's not universal. Okay. So right. either then, is appropriate, though. What? There's diversity among the Muslim community? What? <laughs> I would have never thought that. Yeah. It, given what I see in the news, I would have never thought at all. But okay. um, Or some people say Ramadan or. Well, do they. No, I guess it is just Ramadan Mubarak. Yeah. There are various There's ways that people like uh, Americatize because then sometimes they'll say Happy Ramadan, which yeah. no no one would ever. You only say that in the context of like non-Muslims usually, but then people try to Arabicatize Happy Ramadan by reversing it. Okay, oh. see, because I ju- I literally I was I was talking to uh, Saeed Khan, who we need to have on this show yes. at some point, right? Oh, for sure. um, so I was supposed to meet with him today, but because I have to go to court, I had to cancel our our afternoon meeting, and. I, I was googling on the way here. I was like, "How do you say Ramad? You know, Happy Ramadan. What's the What's the Ramadan greeting from a non Christian to a Muslim?" And it just said, "Happy Ramadan." I was like, "Okay, Happy Ramadan." And then you guys are in here all like this. I'm like, "That sounds like an idiot." <laughs> but we'll we'll talk more about Ramadan. that. Guy's not Muslim, <laughs> but but anyway. So um, no, no, no. But yeah, we're starting Ramadan tomorrow. So 
that was just kind of, you know, we're kind of all trying to get into the groove of things and preparing our homes and getting all ready and spiritually and all that. But um, but I'm super excited for our conversation today. Um, Sultan is a filmmaker, educator, and social entrepreneur. And I love that um, that term, actually. I'm gonna, we're going to talk about that. Um, his interest lies at the intersection of art and community impact. And his directorial debut film, Bilal Stand, premiered at the Sundance Film Festival in 2010. Since then, he's worked on two other feature films. He's a guest instructor at the University of Michigan, and more recently, he attended the Sundance Virtual Reality Lab in the Oculus Launchpad program. We'll talk about that. That sounds neat. Um, And he's actually finishing up a youth reality show for PBS National called Street Cred, which will air in spring of 2017. Did it already... Air? No, we're like planning the premiere right now, actually. Oh, wow. Okay, yeah. Exciting. Um, And actually, so Street Cred features Detroit youth learning entertainment, producing, and business skills. He's also developed projects in LA, New York, and often returns to Detroit to shoot creative projects for the national audience. So we're super excited that you're here in your hometown now and able to join us for this conversation. And um, I'm thank you so much for giving your time and willingness to talk about your story. Yeah, I'm excited to be here. It's always it's funny because when you're reading that, I've, I've been really busy and I'm like, oh, yeah, I do do that. Yeah, like, <laughs> you, forget, is, you forget all the things you've done. what I do, I guess, yeah. And it's funny because I, you know, I saw Sultan, we were talking and I was, I don't know why, I just was like, I'm just, I, I just decided to share that I'm doing this podcast and we were talking about the amazing projects. So I'm like, would you like to come on my show? And you're <laughs> awesome. And you're like, sure. I think, so I think you're going to get there too with the, with this show, you know. Yeah, because I'm doing. You know, I do the leading questions show on mm-hmm. on Wednesday nights, and we're at episode I think, thirty, thirty four, thirty five at this wow. point. And I'll go back through the thread and I'll be like, "Oh yeah, we we talked about that. Mm-hmm. I mean, that was a that was a good conversation. Mm-hmm. I forgot that we did that. So it's really easy to get busy and mm-hmm. forget of all the things you've done. I'm thinking this show is going to get to the point where you'll be like, "Yeah, we talked about adoption, and oh my god, we talked about filmmaking. We talked about edu. I mean, you're gonna have so many things that you forget that you've done because you've been so busy with this and yeah, and it has been busy, but it's a bit amazing. Like yeah. I feel so privileged to be able to share these voices and stories. I'm and telling you, change the name of the show from Unsung Heroes to Saba and her really cool friends. <laughs> <laughs> I still yeah. think you, every week I'm like, dang, people are sweet. Oh, well, thank you. Well, I mean, yeah, I mean, it's again, it's a privilege. I'm really humbled to have this um, this opportunity. Um, and thanks to Podcast Detroit for making it so easy. Little plug in. Um, but anyway, so Sultan, thank you for being here. Um, so, yeah, I mean, you have so, – I mean, again, I really like that term, social entrepreneur, I, and, and I feel like that really does describe kind of the breadth of um, contributions and experiences and, you know, just the amazing things that you're doing. What, is that, what does that term mean to you? Um, I think of it as sort of this intersection of the nonprofit world or nonprofit way of thinking but done in a sort of more business capitalist structure. Um, and, and in my opinion, a more sustainable structure. Granted, I work for a nonprofit, but uh, or currently work with a nonprofit. But um, I, so it actually connects to how I got into filmmaking. So I, um, I was working, I was always sort of involved in community organizations. I started a community service club in my high school, got to University of Michigan, and then immediately started working for the university. And then 9 11 happened in my freshman year. And it just in, in this weird way, it sort of threw me as this young black Muslim kid from Inkster at the University of Michigan, like into a larger um, I don't know how to describe it, like academic verse, academic universe. So mm-hmm. I was working for a group Arts on the Hill. We did art projects for students in the res halls. And then we we did this planning bulbs for peace thing. And so I ended up on the news. And then one of the deans or somebody saw me on the news. And then I ended up working with like four different departments within the university. Um, and then I ended up starting an ice carving club in college. Oh. Uh, and then that so that's like, how that stuff gets started. I'm yeah. like, what are you doing right now? And, uh, I don't know. Well, that expo- I just watched the movie, but I'll stand this week. So, OK. Yeah. And I so, I, uh, yeah, I did ice carving in high school. And oh. so um, and then uh, and so doing that and we ended up starting an ice carving festival. So 
really, really crazy long Wait, story. Wait, where? In, in Ann Arbor. So oh, okay. the Ann Arbor Main Street Plymouth. Ice Carving Festival. Yeah, we modeled it after Plymouth, where I used oh. to compete in high school. And oh. then, uh, yeah, it's in its, like, 15th year or something. So it's cool. The, the club kept going. But basically, by junior year, I knew, like, the Ann Arbor Main Street Association. I knew, like, the Chamber of Commerce. I had, sp- you know, spoken at all these different events with all these, like, deans and all these other folks. So I was on a first-name basis with a lot of people. And I was on a think tank for – um at the time, Jennifer Granholm, the governor, was doing this thing called the Cool Cities Campaign. Mm-hmm. And uh, so they had three student representatives on this sort of think tank, and I ended up on that. And I just saw all of the ways that dollars were being spent. Um, and, I, and I would see all these inefficiencies because I was a student and, like, doing doing my little – my own little organizing as a um, – you know, running the ice carving club and trying to apply for grants and stuff. And then I just would see things that like one example, and it's probably actually my first social entrepreneurial thought is I, I, we would tally up our receipts, right. For um, student organizations. And then I started noticing the thing we spend the most money on is gas. And then all of the student records for student organizations. And at U of M there's like the time there were 880 student organizations. I can remember that quotation. And, uh, and so I started looking at that and I was like, there every year we and I actually worked at a gas station. <laughs> I worked the night shift at a gas station. I had like two jobs in college, and so uh, I was like, every year we spend enough money on gas to actually buy a gas station, and it would be wow. so much more efficient if the university would just buy a gas station that could be student run. You could it could be work for students, and because I worked at a gas station, I knew how the gas station finances cost. Cause you have to do like reports every night of how much you made. And I was like, and then we could just fill up all of the cars that the students use to go everywhere and we would be saving money and we could make money because there wasn't a gas station anywhere on central campus. So I was like, this would be a great opportunity to actually like make money while you're saving money for all of the student organizations. It could essentially fund wow. all of the student organizations if we, if the university would have bought a, its own sort of gas station. And they have a private gas station they use for the, the buses and all of that. But all of the students, you still go to the gas station, you get a receipt, and you have to get reimbursed for your gas expenditures. And so I, I started trying to push it through. I was like, this would be so great. It'd be a fundraiser. Like, we could make, on average, 2 to $3 million a year, and that could go to fund the student organizations. And then you cut out the middleman that we're paying sort of shell, you know, Exxon Mobil or whatever, who's making all this money off of us. And then it was just like it wouldn't fit into the university structure. Like, there's no one... They were like, oh, that's extra liability. That's this, that's that, that, that. And I was just like, it'd still be more efficient. Like, we need to think about ways that we could maximize our, um, uh, uh, you know, just sort of expenditure and um, and then be so much more sustainable. And so that type of – I think that was probably junior year. And that type of thinking just sort of stuck with me where I would always look for ways how can we do this in a more efficient way so that it's not like this – you have this sort of for-profit world, which is driving most economies. And then it's like, and then let's give some charity on the side. You know, it's like, how can we think of ways to do good work, but then make money while we're doing good work? Because if you can create that model, then you can always, the more successful you become, the more good work you can do. And that's kind of what shaped what shaped my company, essentially. What's your company? It's called Beyond Blue Productions. And oh. so I was at Michigan at the time, and they say go blue, and I was like, I want to go beyond blue. And no, I see what you did there. Yeah, I mean, I mean, it's it's U of M though. So. <laughs> go green, anyhow. Um, no one here to say go white. Um, but so okay, that's really kind of interesting. This, this social entrepreneurship mindset that you developed while you were in college and and beyond college, obviously beyond blue, right? Uh, with your production company, talk a little bit about the the filmmaking side because you, you touched on it a little bit. But uh, when did you realize that uh, filmmaking was your passion and uh, and decided, hey, I want to go forward with this as a a career in, in some way, shape or form? Um, it was probably it's funny because I never took like any art class um, in high school or anything. Um, I guess ice carving is an art form, but at my school is more culinary art. So it was like a trade it was in the trade program so i never thought of myself as an artist at any kind um and uh but then when i got to i was was pre-med at michigan my sister was in medical school actually while i was an undergrad we're four uh, four years apart so um so i was just gonna be pre-med and be a doctor like she was and i'd always been good at science classes and i did physics and ap calc and and all of that stuff and so i got into college and then it was calc and and orgo and all of this and so sophomore year i was in Bio, orgo, I had bio, orgo, um, 
I think a calc class. And then I was like, I need something to ease up my schedule. So I took a film class so that I could have like a blow off kind of elective. And then, uh, and it ended up being amazing. Like actually the, the time that it, when it hit me that this might be something I would do, I took my first big bio test and there you have like two big tests and then a final. So most of your grade is from these tests. And I got a D and I had never gotten a D in my entire entire life i was i had this like existential crisis um <laughs> did you I'm, cry i think i probably did cry, actually. Um, yeah I, I remember i cried when i got a c one time in high school and people made fun of me um it was just a test it wasn't even like a a, a report card grade but um but yeah, and I was like, how did I get a D? Like, this must be a mistake. So I go back through my notes for bio, and then all of my notes were filled with storyboards from my film projects. <laughs> wasn't even paying attention to anything that was That's happening because I was shooting this little black and white short film for this film class. And, uh, and then it just it hit me like they always say you find the thing you love when it doesn't feel like work. And I was, and, and it hit me thinking about what to do after this D. And I was like, if I could do this, uh, you know, as a living, like the thing that's like my escape activity when I'm bored in bio and I start making storyboard ideas like what if that was my life, you know, and then uh, I withdrew from that, from that biology class and took a C, I think, and uh, and uh, no, I did pass fail for Orgo. Uh, then the next semester I had like all film classes. Yeah. OK, so your sister's in med school four yeah. years ahead of you. Yeah. We've done this show a number of times. There seems to be this running theme among Muslim Americans that there's some pressure uh, to, to go into the medical field or be a lawyer or something like that. Uh, so, but then there's like this, hey, you know what? I went, I, I followed what my parents had kind of planned out or what they were proud of me. And then something happened and it changed. And now I'm doing this. And my parents were like, wait, what? So uh, what, what was your parents' response? Because your sister's in medical school, right? She's, she's on that. Mm-hmm. career track and you're like i want to do film which is falls under art and a lot of people think art they're like how long till he moves back into the basement yeah. I, like, your parents are having that conversation at home so what was uh what was your parents response when you decided to change your ma- your major there um actually my my mom uh and was always really supportive so okay. it, i mean i'm you know the the black part the black experience trumps muslim experience right. the fact that you were in college was yeah. just like yeah all right you're, st- you're still a u of m you're, you're, okay get a pass and, so, and i have i have eight siblings so i'm number seven so it's, okay. it's not like i was i was uh the one of the front runners so there was when i was in college there were four of us in college at the same time oh my god so um my brother was at morehouse my other sister did was at georgia state with uh child psychology and then another one in medical school. So for me, it was like, I can do whatever I want. How have I not met your siblings? There's nine of you. Eight of you. Um, they're all over the country. Um, the, he's, all as yeah. Sharif. I've never met yeah. him. Oh, surprised. He, yeah, he's in Atlanta, um, L.A., Vegas. Um, so we're around. Wow. Yeah. That's wow. nuts. Well, that's interesting because, I mean, I know that I've kind of talked to you about our experiences, too. I'm an older sister, and my younger brother had a very similar experience. And... Um, you know, pre-med and actually was on the med school track. And same thing, he just kind of um, decided that this was his passion. And um, and I, I give a lot of credit. I think, I, I doubt he's going to be listening to this, so I don't have to be too careful what I'm saying. But I have to give a lot of credit to my parents, actually, too, especially my mom. And I mean, that's like really pivotal um, for parents. I mean, you're right. So we do have this thing in our in our community um, some of the com- maybe more of the immigrant community with this push into, and I, I think it's changing. And I don't know if it's because I'm in my mid 30s now, and it's like hindsight, and I'm not in that age group. But I do think it's kind of changing, and I feel like Muslims are realizing like uh, we have to do other things, and we're kind of coming. You know, Zainab Salman had mentioned this. The reason why that is is because back home for many people there was fewer, I guess, professional options of what you could, you know, and it was seen as a noble profession. I'm like, sorry, I don't know. Medicine is not really so noble anymore. And there's so many change. not that it's not so noble, but there's lots of things that you can do. Um, but I do think that you can, you know, make an impact in different ways. Yeah. But that's interesting. And you know, I also think it's interesting in your story. Sorry to cut you off. But, no, um, go for it. And I've heard this a lot um, with some of the other guests that we've had especially that are Muslim, that September 11th was kind of a pivotal moment. Yeah, that's a that's a recurring mm-hmm. theme as well. Yeah. Education, 9-11. Those, <laughs> those things that keep coming up. Because I've, uh, you know, I've always thought and pondered about kids that all they've known is a post-9-11 world as children. And then it kind of dawned on me, honestly, just a few months ago, like my whole adult life is post-9-11. And that, that it is really interesting that how that impacted us in a different way than when there was when it happened when kids were teenagers or younger kids. It impacted our age group in a much different way. Yeah, I think it forces this uh, sort of like early life 
identity crisis. Um, it's funny because actually I just watched the film Muslim, which I did uh, produce with my friend Kasim Basir, and I hadn't watched it since <laughs> since I think the premiere in like 2011. And uh, and that's kind of what the film is about. It's the main character, and it's his first week of college, and 9/11 happens, which was wow. my experience. And oh, wow. it forces you, at least for me as African American male whose name is Sultan Sharif, like I could choose to be outwardly Muslim or not because there's Kareem Abdul-Jabbar's and Rashid Wallace's and nobody's going to question a black dude with a weird name. Yeah, know? that's right. <laughs> so you can you get to choose whether you want to be sort of outwardly Muslim and how much you want to make that a part of your cultural identity, your, you know, presenting identity. Um and and I know a lot of people who are just low key Muslim. You know, you see a lot of those in the film industry. And there's also some. I mean, since you're black, there's also. I mean, we're in Detroit, so uh, NOI Nation of Islam mm-hmm. was founded here, and so there's that there's that question, which is, I mean, obviously there's the the similarities, but there's also vast differences between the two. And so mm-hmm. yeah, and that, I, that would be my assumption if you told me your name and you're like, yeah, I'm Muslim, I'd be like, oh yeah, okay, he's Nation of Islam, and I would just keep moving. Yeah, but you know, then having the conversation, I'm like, okay, maybe not. Yeah, and and my parents were originally in the nation, and then they transitioned to more traditional Sunni Islam, but um, but that's part, that's still part of your cultural identity yep. like I wouldn't be here without the nation mm. so um, yeah so I think it, it forces you to rethink things I think also to your point we I think in the world not just in Muslim communities you're the sort of comfort and security as as pri- as values or priority are going down and then like happiness and like fulfillment are going mm-hmm. up so I know I have yes, so many friends so I have friends cool, who yeah. went all right. the way through medical school and then we're like yeah I don't want to do this anymore and then just leave it and go do consulting or start a nonprofit or you know and I think bef- our parent generation they were totally willing to like dig in and work 40 hours a week yeah. or, or 80 in my mom's case just just to pay bills and to get the kids and to do the da 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 and then for us we're not built that way um, we, we are, they filled our heads with this 80s Reaganomics and like be you can do whatever you want and be who you want to be and and so then yeah, when, you're a precious snowflake yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and the, wor- the world will, will shape itself to fit your wildest dreams you know and then you, you uh, and I think it, it's it stays within us in a, in a way so then we can only I know so many people who like had this sort of depressive bout and myself included to a certain extent um once you hit like 26, 27 and you're like, I got to where I, I wanted to get to. I thought that this would mean happiness, but oh it God. doesn't. <laughs> so then that you start so wondering wild. why you're doing any of it, you know? You're just totally speaking to me because – and I think maybe that kind of um, – you know, I just started this a few months ago and we've been doing it pretty much every Friday. And I kind of hit that – I don't know if it's too much personal information, but – no, I mean, I'm in my mid-30s and totally, I've got four kids. I'm in my career. I'm like, you know, set, happily married. Um, but same thing. I didn't, I had the sense that, and and I thought, I'm like, God, maybe my parents made me feel like I was too special or something. Like, I, I just felt like there's something else that I should be doing. This isn't it. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah. And I, I think it's, I think it's necessary. I'm actually working on this book about evolution. And I, I think it's like biological evolution or just evolution as a, as a person um, so, or character, that kind of thing. Um, a little of both. So okay. my theory is that there, there is biological evolution. And then with human, with Homo sapiens, we hit a point where our brains started evolving as a continued form of biological evolution. But then it manifests itself as in terms of like our sort of spiritual, cultural thought. And so the, the basic premise is if you took, early homo sapiens or neanderthal and then you they got transported to today and you're like we're going to teach him calculus and and it's like they they went and we're going to teach them empathy and 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 social justice like their brains wouldn't actually be able to process it because Mm -hmm. since that time we've evolved um on a physical and sort of psychological level um so that you couldn't just teach someone what uh, modern day thought because right. their brains wouldn't be able to like hold all of the. And nuances. they can't process it. Yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. It's like uh, trying. To, it's like trying to put uh, all the information on my iPhone on a floppy disk. Yeah. Essentially. Okay. Hey, I'm going to steal that. That's actually. <laughs> yeah. I, I like to so yeah, when when you're in education and you and you teach people things, you're trying to make these uh, these ideas palatable for people. Like, oh, okay, so but I couldn't use that with my daughter because she doesn't know what the hell a floppy yeah, disk yeah. is. <laughs> So great. Yeah, know your audience. Know your audience for that one. So so tell us a little bit about, um, you know, for our listeners about the movie Bilal Stand. Um, And then I didn't even, you know, I mentioned so the other movie, uh, Muslim, that you did. I guess both of those. Um, I mean, just as a brief, and tell me if this is, 
kind of an accurate description. Bilal stands kind of I kind of thought of it as like a coming of age film about a young uh, Muslim black uh, male who's a senior in high school. He has to make a decision to support his family business um, and his mother, who is a single mom. His father passed away, or follow his dream of going to University of Michigan. And as I was watching it, of course, preparing kind of for this, I was wondering just how does that story, if at all, does that story reflect your life experience growing up um, as a Muslim youth? Yeah, it totally, it totally does. And it, and it's I wrote that actually. That was the first script I ever wrote in my first screenwriting class. And uh, it was – it actually the, – the beginnings of the story started um, when my father passed away actually um, when I was 19 and sophomore year of college. And I had a pretty – we had a very, very rocky relationship there. Um, it was very uh, up and down. And, and then as I got older and, you know, he came from the nation in this very sort of militant background and, and – you know, very anti—I don't say anti-American, but because in a way, his values were at the heart of American values. Mm-hmm. But um, anti, like mainstream culture, like we weren't allowed to do a lot of things in mainstream culture. And growing up, it, it sort of alienated you, um, kind of in the way that like home kid, homeschool kids don't really know—you can't really connect with us. It was, you know, we're growing up in mostly public schools. We occasionally would go to Muslim schools, but I just never felt I fit in anywhere. I was always trying to fit, you know, you're, you're black Muslim and poor <laughs> Detroit. And, uh, and those, a lot of those, uh, cultural identities can conflict with each other. Um, and so even for example, like an ideal Muslim male or Muslim young man is supposed to be modest and you're supposed to live in the example of the prophet Muhammad, you know? Right. And, and, but if you are that in, uh, inner city school, you're like weird, <laughs> right? <laughs> you're, you're punk. <laughs> you're stupid. You're gay. You're this. You're that. So um, you're not supposed to, you know. You lower your gaze when a woman walks by. You know, whereas if you do that in the inner city, it's like, why what's wrong you? with you? Right? Yeah. What, what, Did what you, you see doing? that? <laughs> <laughs> like it's it's almost like direct opposite. It's like you everyone stares, damn, when like somebody yeah. walks by. So you're trying to figure out growing up, like. What which world you actually belong to, mm-hmm. and and from a uh, when you're young, because every young person wants to fit in and be cool, you're trying to figure out what um who your allegiance is to. You know, is my allegiance to black culture and and you know dressing a certain way and you know the clothes that people are into, or is my allegiance to Muslim culture because I'm supposed to be Muslim and that's supposed to dictate my behavior and. It, for our, we were the first generation, and and I've actually studied this. Um, we're one of the first generations in history who doesn't have like a core defined cultural identity. Mm-hmm. Um, and what I mean by, mean by that, like uh, you know Malcolm X, right? Yep. So the X represented like c- this sort of cutting off of this not only your last name, but this sort of culture that was handed to you by your slave masters, right, essentially, yeah. right? So my dad was Mac X the third. <laughs> there are two other Mac X's before him. And but and so they were rejecting sort of black American culture. They're right. rejecting American culture, but in doing so rejecting black American culture. Right. So not only did you not eat pork, like you didn't date, you didn't go to prom, we didn't have birthday parties, like um, and they probably actually went overboard, like beyond what is required within Islam. But for it them, became very legalistic in a way. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And but they had no roadmap, right? So, and I'm, I'm saying all of this in hindsight. When you're young, we just hated it, and we thought they were right. mean, mean. And I didn't get to celebrate eat. Halloween because it was Satan's holiday. <laughs> yeah. and we're like all the other kids are coming back to school with with uh, pillowcases full of uh, full of candy, mom and dad. Come on, this sucks. I mean, I'm coming. I'm coming to school the next day with. Only Skittles, which they all knew my parents bought that for me <laughs> just to make me happy. Yeah, we couldn't even eat Skittles because they had gelatin yeah, in had gelatin so in like, it. Yeah, yeah, so imagine like, the resentment again. that gets created from <laughs> yeah. those Skittles growing up. We, we had this debate like every Halloween and bless my heart, my, bless my dad's heart because he, he would feel bad at the last minute. So we'd go like last minute shopping for costumes. There was like nothing left on the rack. <laughs> we had like this leftovers. But I just – it speaks to kind of like – they they're trying to figure out how to do the right thing, but and they're but they're seeing like their kids. You know, they also feel how the empathy and how their kids are feeling, and kind of 
you know, whatever. But yeah, and it's confusing because you you have a mixed mixed family, right? So my grandmother's Christian, and she would give us Christmas gifts yeah. and try to <laughs> subversively give us various Christian other things, Christian <laughs> ideologies. Um, and uh, and so it was this constant thing of like, you know, one year we'd be allowed to get Christmas mm-hmm. gifts, and she bought us a Nintendo. Then the next year it was like no Christmas gifts. So she would slip us twenty dollars when my dad wasn't looking. Like, and so so growing up, you're always trying to process this, and and then I. Th- so I think Bilal stand for me when I when my father passed away I was trying to articulate that I understood why he did the things that he did and trying to articulate that I in a sense forgave him for for what was torture <laughs> growing up um only in the sense that he was human and he had no roadmap and like no one in their generation had a roadmap for how do you reject because my dad went to prom and he dated and he had, you know, he had lots of girlfriends and and all of this stuff and drunk, you know, liquor and ate pork. And all. so then you're raising people, telling them not to do the very things that defined you growing up, you know. So I'm like, that has to be a very confusing thing. And it's an experience that I couldn't identify with. So and he also saw the negative and maybe the things that hurt. Yeah, see, that, that, too. that's always interesting to me. I mean. I went to to college for history, but also for religion. And uh, my background in history is the African-American experience in the early American Republic. So anything from the inception of the nation up to and including the Civil War is my area of expertise. But then I just know the black experience in America beyond that as well. It's not like I just stopped at the Civil War. It was like, no more history for me. Um, but then uh, also uh, have two degrees in religion, working on a third one a- at this point. Matter of fact, when I'm done today, i got to finish up a final. Which I said last week, it's not done yet. And wow. <laughs> uh, that's online school, and you're like, ah, it's two weeks late. Whatever, it's okay. <laughs> um, but but it's kind of interesting when when you're thinking about this this what is my identity? Is my identity tied to the fact that I am black? Is my identity uh, attached to the fact that I am Muslim? And growing up, I'm I'm hearing a lot of similarities. Uh, between our backgrounds, but I grew up Christian and I grew up very conservative Christian. And I'll hear the stories of the things that my mom did before she got saved, right? So mm-hmm. I'll use that language for your dad before he mm-hmm. got saved or before he became a, a Muslim, right? Mm-hmm. And so I don't know what the right language is there, but saved okay. is appropriate. Okay. So, um, <laughs> but I'll hear stories of my mom. My mom will say, This is what I was like before. And I'll be like, You know, as a kid, I was like, Well, I want to do those things, right? <laughs> Why can't I? Do those, and then you see the other kids doing all the cool stuff, and you're, yeah. not, you're not included in those things. So now, even though you're part of your culture, you feel like a homeschool kid because you're not mm-hmm. at the same time. Like, what's wrong with you? Yeah. How come you're you know bouncing your eyes when a pretty girl walks by? How come you don't have a sack of candy at Halloween? Mm-hmm. So, but then I also I also kind of now that I have this background in religion and understand the conversion process of people, I wonder which is harder. I wonder if it's harder for the kid who's trying to make his way in the world, but adults know more than kids, right? You're a stupid kid. You think you know everything, but you don't. Like my daughter's 14, so I'm dealing with that right now, Mm -hmm. right? I know more than she does. I know she needs, I need to give her a little bit of freedom as she gets, you know, older, a little bit more freedom and so on and so forth, but I still know more than her. So there's, there's that, but then there's also, is it harder for the kid who's trying to make their way in the world or is it harder for the person who used to do all those things and converted? So they know the the taste of pork. They know what it's like to date multiple people and maybe have sex with multiple people and have those kinds of things and to go out and party. They know what it's like and they're choosing to refrain from that now and they're raising their kids to to not be involved in that. So I wonder which is protecting harder. Protecting their kids. Trying yeah. to protect their kids. But I, I, I wonder which is – well, protecting in a way, yeah. I mean it didn't kill you. Well, yeah. So. Uh, yeah. <laughs> but, so I wonder if it's harder for the person yeah, who's giving true. it up or the person – uh, who wants to do it but can't? Yeah. Right. Well, I think for me it was always uh, a. It, well, I did a, a research project actually on this very topic um, later, and it was with a doctor, uh, Simer Ahmed, um, and it was called juggling cultural identity. And I think that's what it came down to: is you're like, okay, in the morning I'm mus- I'm, I'm Muslim and, and I'm going to pray, but then in the afternoon I'm going to school and I'm gonna not do the afternoon prayer because I'm not trying to be weird in the hallway, like finding a place to pray. Yeah. But then at Ramadan you do, but then like you know, then you're fe- and so it's, you're constantly picking it up and putting <clears throat> mm-hmm. one yeah. down or pushing one to sort of the forefront. And I think uh, to to sort of circle back, Bilal stand for me was like representative of the stand that I had to take in terms of being finding some level of inner peace and hmm. and accepting who you were 
um, for better or for worse. You know, like, you, yeah, there are times where I'm being sort of bl- black and, and, and in those moments, I may be a bad Muslim <laughs> or, not, or not strictly observing Muslim, uh, you know, the parameters of the religion. But then there are other times where I'm being Muslim and then I'm totally alienating from the black experience. And like all of I am all of those things and I am both of those things simultaneously. And um, and that's a part of who I am. So it was sort of this like I refuse to choose. And I kind of had that myself in high school. That's actually why I took up ice carving because I was trying to I was trying to throw off the expectations of me as a young black man. So I started listening to like Metallica, and I was listening to Corn and Limp Biscuit. Mm-hmm. And uh, so you were becoming Sorry, white, is what uh, <laughs> is what black people would say. You're not really black. Oh, totally, yeah, you're totally. not really black. And okay. then uh, and then I was you know I was a nerd, so then I would like come at them with like some Nation of Islam rhetoric of like, well, you're you know subscribing to the man's <laughs> who's really black you know kind of a thing um and then uh yeah and i I, and i was trying to just push off it was more so expectations i think i saw the way um and this is kind of what my dad's voice always was was like in the inner city people are i don't want to say throwing their lives away but they're making decisions that are more emotionally based and not necessarily in the interest of where they want to end up and so there's this way where you get so caught up in the culture of the clothes that you're wearing and chasing girls and skipping school and smoking weed and da 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 uh, then you, you're not thinking about what your future is going to be whereas I was always a, even as a kid I told my t- kindergarten teacher I was going to Harvard you know and like mm-hmm. I was very future oriented my whole life and it was always and that's kind of part of the I think the Muslim element like there's this expression like in ML Usu Yusra like things will get better sort of late, late, later is better than now and it's this way of thinking where you don't make all of your decisions based on the now. You you factor in the later, you know, and whether that be later in life or the hereafter, et cetera. And so I, I've, you know, and, and when I was in high school, it was all about what you had boss jeans or did you have some Gucci and have the time. Pele Pele. Right. Pele Pele. <laughs> Carl Kanai. Yep. Like Fubu, Fubu had stuff, just yeah. came out, like Rockaware, and and like people would destroy you. Like we never could afford any of that stuff, so I, we had like pickway. Yeah, eight, eight kids. <laughs> well, when you got eight kids, you can't afford anything but food. Yeah, and uh, and we never. I don't think I. I remember filas were big, and I never mm-hmm. had a pair of filas, and and it tears you apart. Mm-hmm. And it just, I had I had this clarification. And now if somebody wore filas, you'd be like, really? what? Yeah. Right. <laughs> and uh, and I, it was interesting because, and it's funny because I'm only reflecting on this now. Like I guess I was sort of like woke <laughs> got, got woke um but like really early and probably too early before woke was a thing because now like you see people with the girls with the natural hair whereas in high school that you get you get laughed out the door if you showed up with like a, a all natural fro mm-hmm. that wasn't permed or whatever whatever and so i was just going through that in my own way um because i was just like i'm not gonna limit my future to try to please you guys when when we live this lifestyle, we don't get anywhere. Right. You know, like Kanye has And said, I don't even like you. Right? <laughs> <laughs> this isn't even fun. Like, why are we doing this? And so I just started, I, and I just felt like you your experiences get limited. So I just wanted to do stuff. I, I started skateboarding. I started rollerblading. I started listening. Like, I, I use this metaphor, and I actually put it in Bilal's stand. Like, we would always have the same five radio presets. You know, it was like WJLB, 105 5.9, it'd be like hip hop, R and B, jazz, oldies, and then like a one more like sort of mixed alternative R and B alternative kind of thing, and that was it. So whether we were in Atlanta, where we were in Detroit, whether you go to Chicago, you find those same yep. five radio mm-hmm. presets. And then I just hit this day where I was like, I'm just gonna hit the seek button and mm-hmm. see what that is like. And I think Bilal Sand to sort of sum that up, like for me, it was about hitting that seek button and just being like, maybe I actually like something else better than I like this. But. Yeah, but is there a scene where he's riding down the street? I'm going to watch this movie this week. Is there a scene where he's riding down the street and he's and he's listening to country? Because I still feel like there's a, <laughs> we're genetically predisposed to not like that. I actually listen to country. It's Do one we, of okay, all right. Country. All right. Okay. 93, 93.1. I, uh, I can take a little bit of oh, it, but only because I... Yeah, 93.1. Only because I was raised, raised yeah. in the South. I feel like my black card has taken away enough. <laughs> you know what? That, I, that's that interesting thing. That's what this conversation is kind of about. Yeah, I won't, I won't go into my theories about music theory, but um, I th- like c- country music, the, the strings that they use, the tone... The the pacing, a lot of the subject matter, it's it puts it puts me at ease. Like when I, I actually my friend put me up on it in LA 
When I was in LA. I've never like, heard put me up on country. <laughs> <laughs> I'm a walking contradiction. In, in, intersecting worlds here, yeah. <laughs> um, but he was like, when you're in traffic, listen to country and it'll like chill you out. And then, cause I was, be, I was stressed all the time and running and then you, you can't drive anywhere in LA without getting stuck in traffic in a Detroit or you're like, ah, I'll get road rage. And he's like, just put on some country and chill out. And then I started doing it and I was like, actually, this does like mellow you <laughs> out. Not so bad. All right. Yeah. Because I mean, uh, compared to the life of the guy they're talking about in this song, <laughs> I don't have it. I don't have it too bad. <laughs> I think that's interesting. I mean, um, I mean, everything. I, I really like that analogy. <clears throat> Hit the seek button every once in a while and just see what comes up. But also, just kind of what you're saying—that you're kind of walking contradiction. Um, it kind of speaks to me too, I guess, as someone that started wearing a scarf or hijab at a pretty young age. I remember that I was like, I do not want to be a stereotypical, um, soft-spoken. Nothing wrong with that. Nothing wrong with being quieter. But I just felt like, especially when I wore a scarf, I was like, I felt like I had to go above and beyond and um, just speak out and have my voice heard. And so I got involved in acting, actually, in middle school, high school. Um, I played music um, and same kind of thing. I always, always felt like that. Huh? <laughs> I, I, know, I know. I know. And it was this whole thing like, do you play, you know, band and everything. But um, so that that's definitely, I think that speaks to a lot of people. Mm-hmm. Um, and we are, I mean, kind of going back to the original point that you made that, you know, it's like, yeah, you look on the outside. I mean, I do it myself. I'll see a Muslim woman that's wearing hijab walking by and I myself feel like I'm making assumptions Mm -hmm. about her and I'm like well I don't like people doing that to me and I'm doing the same thing that you know (laughs) maybe she doesn't speak English or something like Mm -hmm. that I'm like what Mm -hmm. am I doing yeah anyway so so, I mean we've I I like the the title of your uh your reality show uh Mm -hmm. street cred because I mean in a way I think we're playing around the edges of of what it means to to have street cred you know are again are you black enough are you are you really from the neighborhood? Are you excelling in school? Okay, that's not what we do. My niece is going through that right now. She mm-hmm. got made fun of for being a straight A student. Right? Mm-hmm. Um, she's a person who would cry if she got a C. She's, <laughs> she's in eighth grade right now. Um, she goes back and forth whether it's okay to have natural hair or whether uh, or, or, or as Chris Rock called in his documentary, good hair. Yeah, mm-hmm. you know she should, whether she should have that or not. Um, but tell us a little bit about this documentary from PBS, uh, Street Cred, because it sounds really, really interesting to me. Yeah, so so to the concept um, actually came about when we made when we made Bilal Sand. So we didn't only just shoot a regular film; we approached filmmaking differently. Um, where we uh, worked, it was actually my graduate thesis at Michigan. We partnered high school kids from Metro Detroit with college students and working professionals, and so we created this like three tiered mentor system. And then they would learn about and then get to make a film. So it was like part media literacy, um, but also realizing the level of like cultural exchange because you take all these things that we're discussing and then you go to U of M, right? <laughs> and then all of a sudden it's like a completely different world. Right. And I just I realized that they like. There's so many things that you deal with in the inner city and you don't realize that the world doesn't really understand what you're going through, uh, but also that you don't understand a lot of the other stuff in the world because your perspective has been limited to this this geographic space and the socioeconomic space that you occupy. And so, um, so Street Cred, actually, the first sort of version of it, if you will, happened when we did Bilal Stan. Um, and then essentially for the next 10 years, I was trying to get it um, – turned into a show and it's it's actually like a hack of a reality genre so it's a docu series at its core about the challenges that inner city youth go through um when when trying to accomplish their goals but we use the microcosm of them trying to make a film project and then so it's like pick a bunch of kids from different backgrounds put them together give them a little bit of resources to make something and a little bit of instruction and then just like step back and see what happens um and what city is this being filmed in? this is in detroit it is in um, detroit. yeah right. and so uh so we had an amazing cast of kids um eight kids from all over detroit from uh muslim hijabi to you know the kid who just got out of juvie to latino um non-gender specific kid who wears makeup <laughs> um to uh white kid with corn rolls and tat- tattooed up and then they all had to work together on shooting virtual reality uh a virtual reality short film 
And then it's like conflict ensues. <laughs> and uh, but it really at the core, it's um, it's also changing the way we think of competition. So I always, you know, most reality shows come at a very sort of external conflict. Whereas I always felt like growing up, your internal conflicts were way bigger than your external conflicts. Like, yeah, you're broke, but everybody's broke. You know, right. and like anybody who's taught in inner city schools, you know, you could have a kid from. A beat, a beat up home, parents on drugs, whatever the case might be, and they can be a straight A stellar kid. And then you have a kid from, uh, you know, with both parents at home working at Ford and GM, and then they're the knucklehead who acts up. So mm-hmm. it's re- it really becomes more about the internal struggles versus the external. So in the show, they're competing with each other, but we actually measure their personal development. So they have like a cred bar. So as they overcome various obstacles and challenges, their cred bar goes up. So if they step outside their comfort zone, their cred bar goes up. If they try something and fail, their cred bar goes up. So the kid who has the most cred at the end of the show ends up winning. But nobody gets voted okay. off, right? The whole no time. one gets voted off. Okay. I wanted right. to initially vote them off, but then it, 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 it sort of worked. There's, there's that point in their age where they're like, that's going to damage them. I, actually, I, don't, I didn't think so. I was like, they, they've dealt with more in their lives than okay. getting voted off a reality okay. show. Like, All right, true story, right? That yep. we're dealing with. But, um, but I just wanted to the world to see, the, I think a lot of times these kids, a lot of kids in Detroit are labeled disadvantaged, underprivileged. Like you're always framed by what At you don't risk. have. Yeah. 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 And you're framed that way based on a financial evaluation. Mm-hmm. Whereas I'm like, if you look at them in terms of the experiences that they have, like, and that's kind of how I felt when I got to U of M. Like I had, I had been working two jobs and like going to school and playing sports and honor society and community service club and ice carving club. Like I was juggling all of this as a 17 year old, you know, and then I got to college and like my roommate had never really worked before. And I was like, you, you wait a minute, you got, you just went to school. Like that's all that you did. But then a lot of times they're framed because they don't have money. So they're underprivileged or lower income or whatever disadvantage. And I'm like, actually, if you look at your experiences, like you're the one I would hire coming out of high school. Cause you have all these experiences, mm-hmm. like you're advantaged because of your lack of privilege not the other way around and so that's kind of what street cred represents it's like you have all of this credibility and experience that the streets if you will give you even and you just need to figure out a way to translate those skills and those um that level of sort of maturity that the streets mm-hmm. give you into a professional context yeah i wonder if uh I, I'm, I'm hearing that and i'm like okay that's that's great but the kid that you were roommate with who never had a job in his life like I want to know where he is right now. Like, did Daddy get him a job? And I don't want to make it sound sound like this guy is good for nothing. Um, but we have a system right now that doesn't honor the type of thinking that you have. Like, hey, you need the four year degree. This is why I like people like uh, Mike Rowe, who does the dirty jobs thing. He's like, look, there's like thirty thousand jobs right now that don't require taking on the student debt that people are taking on. It just you need to go to a trade school. You know, I mean, they talk about the top schools in the nation and there's never a trade school on the list. It's like here are all these jobs that are unfulfilled because we have the skills gap. And so then you have the, the people are talking about, oh, immigration, all these jobs. That, there's a skills gap because people in other places are taught to work with their hands and know how to do certain things and they don't take on a lot of debt and they come here. But I do wonder if uh, our system of hiring and firing in this nation at this point or even around the world doesn't honor the kind of thinking uh, that you're talking about, hey, look, you have this, that, and the other experience because you didn't have every single uh, amenity available to you. But this kid's parents had enough money to send him to college, which is really a four-year holding pattern, right? Because mm-hmm. uh, when our parents got out of high school, they could go right into a factory if they wanted. Mm-hmm. Uh, we don't have that anymore. So this four-year holding pattern, you might go on for a master's degree, and you haven't done anything yet but mm-hmm. turn in papers, but you're going to get a job. Mm-hmm. And so I wonder if if our if our system needs to match uh, or find a way to match what you're what you're talking about as being valuable because I find it valuable but I don't know that our um, I don't think the does. system does I think it becomes a question of what what will what will be the change factor or the change agent or the catalyst that gets the system to do that and so my thing is a lot of people who work in social justice they try to change the system and i'm like you don't need to change the system you need to change the kids because the kids are themselves are going to change the system if they have if there's a hundred kids who think the way that um who are forward thinking and take advantage of opportunities then they're the ones who are going to shape it by just being who they are yeah like and that's kind of what i had to accept for myself 
myself through all of my work. If I if I am me, the system changes, right? Because I I am this thing that doesn't fit into any box, and none of us fit into any box. So whereas our parents like took a forty hour job to fit into their factory position, we create a different type of factory by being who we are. And so um and so that's kind of my larger philosophy is if you follow your passions and you're authentic to you, who you are and your experiences, then you therefore then create change. And there's a, a Muslim, uh, expression in Islam like God doesn't change um the conditions of a person until they change what's in their hearts. And so my thing has always been like, if you change what's in the kids' hearts, then that's going to change their condition. And that's kind of what I've experienced in my life. Okay, cool. Wow. So when, um, when, where can we watch, uh, street cred? Um, so it will be, uh, we don't know our release date yet. It'll be airing on DPTV, um, pretty soon, probably within the next two months. And so I, in about two weeks, I find out when our air date is. But we're planning a premiere within the next month, like a local premiere in Detroit. So I'll share that info once I know it. We'll have to post that on the awesome. Facebook page once it's uh, yeah, for once sure. we know that date. Wow, that's like pretty amazing. That's so interesting. Um, you have, I mean, you know, you've have such a rich, um, wide variety of experiences, and I think that you definitely um, exemplify, you know, everything. I mean that embody um, finding your passion, but using it and creating um, creatively as well as logistically and, you know, all of that. It's like, it's a, thank you so much for being here. It was just an amazing conversation and I'm really excited for you and everything that you have done and everything that you have to offer and, you know, what's in the future for you. Thank you. Thank you guys so, for having me. Yeah, yeah no problem. It was a great conversation. Thank you, Calvin. And um, thank you so much, Sultan, for being here. And um, yeah, so to, again, just to, close out please uh like our facebook page follow along um with our um you know past episodes on soundcloud we're on soundcloud the podcast app um uh and then of course on www.podcastdetroit.com itunes oh yeah we're on google play oh oh, that's we're all over the place i'm like forgetting yeah i can't keep up check out the yeah check out the facebook page too yeah yes please check out the facebook page for upcoming um episodes and links and all that kind of fun stuff and and please follow share share with your friends um you know this is all about just getting different voices out there and sharing our stories so thank you so much for listening and join us next time for another episode of unsung heroes The legends and the myths, Achilles and his gold, Achilles and his gifts, Spider-Man's control, and Batman with his fist. And clearly I don't see myself upon that list. Yeah. She said, where'd you want to go? You know, you could have spoken for a talk for like another, yeah, well, usually sorry, it's I, for like I, another I, half I hour. I'll ramble about it. No, 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 it's awesome. I'm like, no, 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 I do too. That's why I was like, I'm like, I'm always like trying to circle, like, what, 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 how did I get up on this topic? And like, how can I get back to circle back to 